My name is Anne McElhenney. And I'm Phila McAleer, and we're here to tell you about our really exciting new project. It's coming out on Monday, the 9th of December. We're getting Adam Baldwin to narrate the Inspector General's report, actor Adam Baldwin, and we're going to release it as a podcast. This is the first time anything that this has been done. Uh, you're going to hear the full Inspector General's report. This is a report that's going to tell you the truth about what Comey did behind closed doors, what Strzok and Page did behind closed doors, how they set up the fake Russia uh, collusion story, how they set up the fake investigation. And the way that you can find this is sign up right now so that we can get this to you the second that it drops. Here at the igreport.com, H-E-A-R. Here the igreport.com. Sign up right now and we will send this to you so on Monday. Adam is also an award-winning narrator uh, yeah, of books. Yeah, he's an award-winning narrator so there's of no books one for better, Audible. There's we, no one, we couldn't have a better voice. This is the guy that you want to hear, and you'll get to hear this on your commute, on your bus journey. You'll be able to hear this on the podcast, so sign up right so now to heartheigreport.com. You're going to hear this report on unfiltered by the mainstream media, so there's not going to be anybody telling you what's important, what's not, hiding the truth from you. You're going to be able to hear the report in full, Read by Adam Baldwin. Uh, it's it's just going to be a pleasure. Yeah, it's great. To it's release great. it, We're a pleasure excited. to do it. It's great to bring the truth to people. So sign up right now at hearthigreport.com and let's get the truth out there. We're here in Trump Hotel, Washington D.C. We're going to go now and interview Molly Hemingway, a senior editor at the Federalist. She's going to tell us what's going to be in Monday's Inspector General's report, what's not going to be in the Inspector General's report, what's significant, what's not. We're also going to discuss her book on on Brett Kavanaugh uh, and his hearings. We're going to talk about Trump derangement syndrome and so much more. So let's go to Molly Hemingway now. Let's talk to her about what's important and the Inspector General's report on Monday. Hello, this is Phelan McAleer. And this is Anne McElhenney, and this is the Anne and Phelan Scoop. Uh, and we're very grateful to be here at the Institute for Energy Research. Uh, we're stealing their facility today to interview Molly Hemingway, our dear guest. Great yes. to be here with so you. So thank you for coming, Molly. Outside, it's Washington, D.C., um, and uh, we're here. And we're, I'm very, very pleased to be interviewing Molly, who's uh, a great journalist. Uh, just, I'm sure everyone out there knows who she is, but just to... For those who don't, she's a journalist, columnist, New York Times best-selling author, uh, senior editor at The Federalist, um, Fox News contributor. She most recently uh, would be known for her book, uh, Justice on Trial, The Kavanaugh Confirmation and the Future of the Supreme Court, a New York Times best-selling book. Um, she, uh, she, she was one of the original Russia skeptics, as in she was always skeptical of the whole Russia Gate story. Uh, and was proven correct and for for two or three years constantly wrote and constantly pointed out the 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 inadequacies in the story and the inadequacies of journalism and was proven right so it's very timely actually that we're meeting you right now because we're basically on the eve of the IG's report so we're going to be talking a lot about that today great um she's also she's long been a media critic um in the sense of examining how the media cover stories Famously, you've all you've been well known for covering how the media cover religion. Yes, uh, and if hopefully we can get onto it later. It's one of my favourite journalistic stories, the crow's ear git. <laughs> yes, it's it's just actually, and I and I love the way you covered it uh, too, because you, I remember you writing about it, and it, and it was one of my favourite things you've written was that that the New York Times was covering the the, the funeral of Pope John Paul II, and they said he was lying in his coffin. With his with his with his crow's ear, C R O W S E A R. Now, 
this he wasn't he was lying in even i even most you know he was lying with a crozier which is the staff with that the, the the pope has the the crooked the shepherd's uh, staff and uh, obviously the new york times journalist didn't know what a crozier was yeah. and, and not just that they didn't know what it was, but even years later, after having countless people let them know, they it didn't still have change. Not no, I, I checked it this morning. It's still there. <laughs> <laughs> no, but actually, fully, the thing that really I really liked about your journalism on it, because normally, you know, when I said media critic, you know, you know, people think of this, you know, mainstream media is biased and all this. You wrote in the Federalist. It still hasn't been corrected. And part of me hopes it never will be. <laughs> and, you know, I get that. It's like, it's just wonderful. And, you know, let's not get all up on our high art. Let's just enjoy uh, the absurdity, the absurdity yeah. of it. So, um, so, I mean, let's start with, let's start with Russia Gate. Um, basically, why were you a Russia skeptic? What, 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 why? Well, Believe it or not, I actually was not a Russia skeptic at first. I think I was a Russia believer for a very short period of time. I thought it was crazy that Donald Trump was doing so well in the Republican primary. I was reading things that suggested that this was Russia-related, and I, for about a week, explored that. I looked into how all of his advisors did seem to have this different foreign policy attitude toward Russia. I knew that the trolls online were definitely a Russian troll mm -hmm. factory. And... Um, I happened to talk to someone who just disabused me of the notion right away. He said, you're confusing a difference in foreign policy mm. with yes. a, a big conspiracy. conspiracy. And in fact, there are a lot of people who think that our foreign policy needs some updating from the post-World War II you know, global consensus. And he wasn't even particularly outside of that consensus. He just kind of explained to me who some of these people were and how they weren't the boogeymen that the media were portraying them to be. So I did have a very brief period, and I kind of like to just explore ideas sometimes mm -hmm. just, sure. just to do that. Um, when Donald Trump won and when the Russia hoax really took off, <laughs> I definitely was skeptical, just because I knew so many people who had voted for him, and it wasn't because of Russia. They actually had legitimate reasons for voting for him or voting against Hillary Clinton. And so few people in Washington, D.C. and New York actually knew anyone who had voted for him, much less yeah. you know, <laughs> the number of people that they should have known. Yes. Um, and so I definitely got skeptical there. And then the real thing that helped me was that I happened to have someone who was a perpetrator of the conspiracy reveal in my presence, stupidly, who, who one of his sources was. And when that, when that happened, I realized, oh, okay. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. And, it, and that yeah. gave me the confidence, because as you pointed out, people were very critical of anyone who was skeptical, but I had, I had such good authority, yes. ironically, yeah. the, you know, one yeah, of the yeah. people who's perpetrating <laughs> it, that it helped me be confident. And yeah, actually, that's a good point you made. I think Donald Trump has, has destroyed a lot of things in America, many of which needed to be destroyed, uh, you know, the White House correspondence Dinner, uh, you know, that's just one example. But he's destroyed the media. He hasn't destroyed the media, but he's destroyed this whole idea of anonymous sources, um, the, that, the, that they should be held up as, and, and not questioned. And this idea also of, of an anonymous source, you know, you often see this, a source close to the, to the Trump administration, but that's not a proper source, and even as an anonymous sourcing, because there are people close to the Trump administration who are Trump skeptics. Uh, there are people who are Trump fans, or you know, uh, there are a senior yes. a senior Republican could be anyone from Steve Schmidt to to Mike Pence. Right. 
and to not say to not give your anonymous sources a background motivation a motivation yes. say who would be normally who would be normally skeptical of this or who would normally be cheerleading this or right. whatever it is that doesn't w wash anymore. Well, so ideally you wouldn't be using any anonymous sources. In this town, unfortunately, you have to use a lot of anonymous sources. It's just part of the culture if you want to be reporting on mm -hmm. anything in the government. It's the overuse that mm -hmm. is so disconcerting and the fact that there's no accountability. Mm -hmm. Frequently you get these explosive bombshell stories, source close to the Trump administration says Putin really mm -hmm. is controlling everything, yeah. and then the story falls apart and then you, you can't hold anyone accountable other than the journalists. Mm -hmm. And I think journalists should have thought about that when they were just deciding to go for those easy clicks, that they were trading their credibility in the process. And you can't blame people, you know, for years, month after month, week after week, there were these supposed explosive stories that, that mm -hmm. showed that in fact there was treasonous collusion with Bombshell. <laughs> and then, um, and then when it all fell apart, and nobody took responsibility for it. Nobody's even written those pieces of, how did we get this story so wrong? Mm -hmm. How did we all get this story so wrong? Actually, how, how did people in middle America know that we were full of it, but we didn't know it ourselves? Yeah. You know? I mean, you're, you're correct. Those pieces are almost journalistic cliches now. After a big story falls apart, some gray-bearded journalist sits down you know, from a distance and yes. wonders and ponders how they got it so wrong and, and kind of promises that they won't do it again at the end. And no longer. No longer, you know, and, oh, you know, we have all a lot to learn, you know, and, and it's, you know, and kind of blame the culture and blame everything, but, you know, not blame themselves, but do blame themselves and all. These pieces have not appeared. And they also didn't really appear in 2016. I remember that Chuck Todd, who is such a clown at times, um, had this thing about how they couldn't afford to get some story wrong. I don't even remember what the story was yes. because they had uh, previously gotten, oh, I can't even remember what his example was. He had an example of getting mm. some story wrong. Maybe it was the Iraq war or something mm. like that. Can't afford to get another story wrong. He was saying this after the 2016 election and it didn't occur to him. <laughs> for many people, yes. the way they covered that campaign was just an objective failure. It's yes. not even that Trump won, although that makes it conclusive. Mm. Even if he hadn't won, mm -hmm. even if just tens of millions of people had voted for him when they were pretending like that was something that nobody mm -hmm. could do, that would have itself been a failure. But nobody said, how did we get this wrong? How did we get it so wrong? Well, what do we do to improve it? I think you make a very good point, though, about those people, those kind of experts and those kind of guys that are populating all our television screens, that they don't, they don't, it's like they never travel. It's like they never <laughs> get out, you know, it's like... You know, they nearly need to kind of, there nearly needs to be some kind of like a tour organized for them, you know. I'd love them to tour with me where I've been, to places I've been. Where I have to say, actually, I got an education myself, yes. which, I found, which I'm humbled by. But I, you know, and I, I just think of my, the sto and we tell these stories on the podcast a bit, but, you know, places where I've been, I mean, we just think of one place we've been where a ver somebody was incredibly generous to the Gosnell movie, as you know, we did the huge crowdfunding. And we ended up in this house with this man, devout uh, uh, Presbyterian, uh, humble, sober, you know, you know, the kind of person, mm -hmm. uh, beautiful person um, who lived in a very uh, modest home, you know, just a modest person. And we who was, a in, who was a millionaire, but, but lived a very modest life. And we went into his house and he said, do you mind if we pray? And I have that happen all the time. Right. But normally what happens is they say, because Anne is so fabulous and Anne is so this and Anne is so great. So I kind of put my head down and thought, here we go again, you know, in a kind of a lovely smug way. And, if, and the man said, as we do in this house every day, in the morning and in the evening, we will praise God and thank God 
that Donald Trump is our president. And I'm there with my head down thinking, God, do, does anyone know these people exist? And obviously I know now, they're all over the place. People like, these, so these guys that you're talking about, they don't, know about, they don't know that that man exists, but they never bothered talking to him. And the likes of him, and the likes right. of him are everywhere. But and he's just one, they're just, that's one type of person. But there's, you know, obviously, you know. But the point then is, they still have no interest. <laughs> you know, <laughs> afterwards. I, and not only that, you know, I, I remember, I, after the election, I wrote a, a piece that, uh, that never got published, but I, 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 it was a satirical piece, right? Or it was a kind of, Announcing, you know the way they, they, they announce changes in one of those little diary pieces, changes in personnel. And the New York Times hired the chief political correspondent from Politico. Politico hired the junior political correspondent from the New York Times. <laughs> uh, the Hill hired the uh, person from the Washington Post. The Washington Post hired the person from, from the Hill. Yeah, yeah. You know, and the Politico switched, you know. And and all and every time they do it, this little bio, cover the 2016 campaign, you know, <laughs> cover the 2016 campaign. And I'm going... You hired the person who covered the 2016 campaign for the Washington Post and, you know, co covered Washington. For, and it's like, they got it all wrong. And your people got it all wrong. So what do you do? You hire someone from the other team who got it all wrong. Why did, you know, you know, why didn't you, did you, they never think of hiring, of, of going, yeah, who got it right? Right. Anyone who got it right. Yes, yeah, some now, person down in Alabama who said it all or, along. Well, you know? well, there was people in D.C. who got it right. But they're not being hired. It was this musical chairs after the election of all the people who got it wrong. Yes. And they gave each other awards for their yes. coverage, too, even though it was demonstrably <laughs> awful. Um, there should have not just been the non-hiring of people who got it wrong or the non-promotion. They should have been bringing in other people. Yes. And they should have made whatever systematic changes they needed to make to make sure that in the future their stories wouldn't be so one-sided, so blind to what was going on. They didn't make any systematic changes. No. They didn't even try, and they didn't apologize. I always love it when Donald Trump says, the New York Times apologized, because they had a piece where they were like, well, we did, I guess we have to admit we got it wrong. And <laughs> it wasn't really an apology, so they always say, we didn't apologize. And yeah. I'm like, you should just... You should just pretend that yes. you did. Yeah, 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 for you yeah, yeah. You had in any way admitted error that you totally did a disservice to your readers. Because yeah. the other thing is for people on the right or people who aren't on the left, they had a real long period of time to get adjusted to Donald Trump. You know, at first it's like this can't be happening yes. for some people. Some <laughs> yes, people like yes, him. Yes, yes, yes. By the way, but then they could kind of go, okay, well, I talked to this reasonable person and yes. here's what that yes. person yes. Yes. And you had this like slow transition. And for a lot of people on the left and for a lot of people it in happened. positions of power, it happened with, within minutes that it happened they had in to November, get adjusted. It happened in yes. November, whatever. The, the, true, actually. And it's actually kind of shocking. It's a truly traumatic. shocking. So, and we're seeing the effects. Like, it, there's, that's no excuse for spending more than three years coming to terms with it. Maybe a, maybe a month would be mm -hmm. a maximum amount of reasonable time. Um, but that's people, a, that's a, people have gotten over, not to make fun, but, but people have gotten over the death of their husband quicker than <laughs> some of these people, these operatives, have got over the fact that, yeah, true, that Donald Trump true. is the president of the United States. You know what I mean? You know, it's almost yes. like it's almost obscene, like the grief period has gone on. You know, the, 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 yes. you know there's that thing, I think there's some, there's some, that thing that gets said, by the way, you know, it's like, it's a little unseemly. Your, your grief is a little unseemly now. Right. You know, and they're yeah. really, this is unseemly at this point and uh, idiotic and in, unintelligible. Well, but they, it's, they go but through, it's quite funny. Did they know? go through the seven stages of grief? Oh, Kubler Ross or whatever her yeah. name was. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know what they are. I but think they're I definitely in denial. The anger and anger. denial thing. No, they're stuck on that one. Stick, stick There's no acceptance No yet. acceptance. There's no acceptance. And moving on, no. Yeah, yeah. no. So next week, um, as we know, on Monday, the IG's report has got to come out. And 
you know, on the eve of that, like, what are your thoughts? Where, wh when that when that hits our all our desks on Monday morning, what what are where are you going to there? Where are you looking? What's what are you looking? Or for? Or are you looking for anything? Uh, are you just looking for everything? I'm, I'm one of those people who actually reads these everything. reports, and yeah. I think there are very few people who yes. actually read them. And I've read this Inspector General's previous reports on malfeasance at the FBI. So mm -hmm. I feel that this is an informed speculation also based on what little we know from leaks and whatnot, mm -hmm. that it will be, like his previous reports, full of information about wrongdoing, but also not that harsh yes. when it comes to accountability. Yes. Yeah. And that is partly a function of almost all inspector generals. Mm -hmm. I always say that they are like the HR department at a corporation. Mm -hmm. You think as an employee that they're there for you, but then you realize they're just there to serve the corporation. Inspector generals exist to clean up problems at agencies. And so partly that might mean that you have to be honest. Okay. Okay. Yes. This campaign was spied on yeah. with human informants yeah. and wiretaps and national security letters and overseas mm -hmm. intelligence assets. But actually, if you look at it another way, it's okay. You know, yeah. kind of thing. Um, this inspector general in particular has been very harsh about Comey and McCabe. I mean, he referred them for criminal prosecution. Uh -huh. But again, for uh, an issue of this scope to spend as many years as he has on this and to have, I think at best you're hearing rumors of two criminal referrals out of uh -huh. this, you could have gotten two referrals for something like, you know, mismanaging your time card. Yes, yes. So if you only have two criminal referrals, it, it suggests that this is going to be a cleanup operation. At the same time, I think we will get some actual facts that a lot of people, I mean, for some people who have given up hope of any accountability for this, yes. they kind of just want to know what, what was going on. Yes. 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 But having said that, even there, we won't get a full scope because yes. inspector generals can only talk to people who are currently in the agency. So not only does that mean he can't talk to anyone at any of the other mm -hmm. agencies that were involved, he can't compel their discussion, yeah. he wouldn't even go to talk to them. He can't talk to anyone who was fired or let go or anything uh, like this too unless they cooperate of their own volition. So it's not a very powerful position in terms of gathering information. Also why I think it's been frustrating it's taken this long for a report mm. to come together, given that he doesn't even have that much power. Um, so limited in scope. Oh, the other thing is, this is really only supposed to be a look at FISA abuse, mm. mm -hmm. so that spy court abuse. Mm. And there's actually so much more than yes. just the the yes. wiretap. Yes, yes, because there was, as you say, there was a human intelligence, there was the... Was there a CIA agent sent to London? Uh, well, they had strongly... The, the original story made it seem like it was a CIA agent, although one of the leaks last week suggested that it was an FBI person, So, uh, yeah. which is so, not supposed to be something you're sending overseas. Yes, so. yes, yeah, yeah. So, there was, you know, the, as you say, there's, this is... FISA may have been the um, the, the gateway or, or a way in, but it's, actually it wasn't the only way in at all by any means uh, because they were using human intelligence, they were using all sorts of other uh, listening devices, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. So, I don't know. I mean, I kind of am worried it's going to be like the Comey situation. You remember when Comey totally ripped Hillary Clinton yeah. for her mishandling yeah. of classified but information? But he was like, but Whatever. we're not going to prosecute. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And this guy seems to have a little bit of that attitude, a mm -hmm. Comey-esque attitude of, okay, everything they did here was wrong, and people really have lost faith in, in the agency as a result. Oh, but it's It's, it's also fine at the same time. The fact of the matter is, unfortunately, and without reforms, it'll definitely yeah. continue to be this way. There is wide prosecutorial discretion at, at the Department of Justice. There's wide discretion in general about how you can handle a situation. You actually can 
apparently place spies on your political opponents' campaigns, and there's no rule against it. So if there's no law or rule right. against yeah. something, right. yeah. Um, yeah. it's kind of hard to hold people against yeah. I mean, it's kind of an amazing scene. I mean, that that whole scene of what happened in London to me is like it's very. It's I mean, clearly, obviously, we were in the movie making business, and the idea of the girl in the short skirt kind of thing. Yes. You know, without, without I mean, sounding too whatever, you know. But it's like wow. I mean, they I just sent think a girl in a short skirt. They basically like, sent a girl in a short skirt actually, to a posh hotel, right? And yes. the whole thing is like, oh, so 007 is true then, right? No, actually, funny, <laughs> we should, funny you should mention this. Oh, there you go, Phil. <laughs> this is my favorite T-shirt, which I've just got. It's the Thunderball. My f my friend Steve got me this. It's it's the yes, it's the poster yes. from Thunderball. Which Sean Connery. Sean Connery. Who was the real 007? Who was the real but 007? But it does have it. Does when when I started reading through that stuff, um, um, it's like, oh my god, like they they do this stuff. They sent a girl with a short skirt, and right? And you first would hear people, some of these people who were caught up in the surveillance, they would tell stories like, and then there was a really pretty girl who I'm kind of suspicious about. And you go, <laughs> oh come on, yes. like, you are oh, no, being no, targeted by right, the US yeah, government. Yeah. And then you're like, oh okay, actually. Yes, yes, they did. They sent it. And that she was like, too. and that she was like really nice. Like the whole thing was really yes. funny, and that she was really, really nice. Really but interested in what he had to but say. But really <laughs> interested in what he had to say. And kind of asking an awful lot of questions. Yeah, yeah. I just love that. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, but you're, but also part of this is how the media will cover it because you see, you know, you're you're correct. Comey was referred for prosecution, uh, and and you know this thing that Lisa Page and Strzok were cleared in the last Inspector General. He slammed them. Yeah, absolutely. And he said, like, he said, like they harmed, they harmed the agents, they, and also that the, he could not be sure that they were not free from political bias. He says that in his in his line. But the media has this line that we're cleared in the last IG's report, right? And it's like so the how the media cover this is going to be uh, very important. And I think we we so we, yeah. and I think it's worth pointing out the leaks that they have been complicit with. Yes, say that this report is going to just clean them all up and yes. everything was yeah. great. Yeah. And so that's my standard. I'm going to look at this and go, is it true that this several hundred page report completely exonerates yeah. everyone who yes. perpetrated this hoax? Yeah. I am suspicious about that. I'm not hopeful that it will be a really good report in terms of holding mm -hmm. people accountable. I think if you don't clean up the FBI, it's really bad for the FBI. It's really bad for the country. Yes. It's bad for just people's trust well, in law. Well, I have to say, I have to say, you know, but their standard is complete exoneration. So that's what I'm going to look for. I, I have to say, I've thought about this. You know, you know, and I, I think about the FBI. You know, in a way, if you saw something suspicious down the road, or there was something, let's say your neighbor was carrying large boxes with <laughs> explosives written on them, and you saw this, and then the FBI came to your door tomorrow, came to my door tomorrow, and said, "Would you help us?" I think I'd slam the door on them. I really would. I would. I want nothing to do with these people. It's interesting you say that because you know, and obviously Molly, we were very great, delighted that you were able to come to see the FBI Lovebirds when we had it here in Washington D.C. with about five hundred people in the audience. And interestingly enough, and I don't know if I said that to you that night, but a, a gentleman came up to us and said, "I'm actually, I'm, I'm an FBI agent. This is my daughter who's an FBI agent, and we just wanted to tell you, you know, we're disgusted, we're brokenhearted, yes. oh. we're brokenhearted. Um, this is not what we got. This is I give my whole life, and I think he maybe he was just slightly retired." maybe or something but and this lovely young woman that was with him his, his his daughter but they were like you know kind of quietly saying you know we're with the FBI people the rank and file like very disgusted so, living here you know a lot of FBI people sure. and I love them all some of them are some of my closest friends yeah. I literally know one bad FBI person and that person happened to be on the, on the Mueller probe which I just think is funny oh yeah it's so horrible actually um but I wanted to say a comment about that Lovebirds thing, which I thought was interesting, related to Lisa Page's recent mm -hmm. thing. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We need to so, add some new emails in there, by yeah. the way, some new text messages. Yes. So she says she went to this hack reporter to give her story 
because she was so upset that Donald Trump had faked an orgasm. Yes. yes. And I thought, like, what is she talking about? Yes. I'm pretty informed on this. I don't know. What, and I was like, I hope she's not talking about that part where he kind of reenacts their emails. Yes. yes. Um, and, in fact, that was clearly yes. what she was yes. referring uh, to. And I thought, rally. the only way someone could think this was a faked orgasm is not just because they are not knowledgeable about the issue, for lack of a better way of putting it, <laughs> but also because they're not knowledgeable about those emails. They didn't realize that they did these gushy emails to each other where they would do this yes, John and Marcia yes, style, yes. you know, <laughs> Yeah, team, oh, team, oh, oh, team. Peter, but you're so oh, smart. No, you're um, smarter. But that's what I loved about that Lovebirds performance in D.C. was sometimes when you're doing live theater, the audience can almost drag it down. They don't respond. They're not mm. in a good mood. And so much requires that interplay. That was one of the most well-informed audiences <laughs> oh, I was ever <laughs> sat in. So, I was so pleased. Yes. I mean, they, I, they I got did, every I suppose we better tell people, just yeah. anyone who doesn't. So the FBI Lovebirds Undercovers, we took the uh, text messages between Peter Strzok and Lisa Page and their congressional questions behind closed doors by Congress and brought them all together and only using verbatim uh, testimony or the text messages made a play out of it. So it's a love story meets John le Carrier uh, meets uh, madness in the, and malfeasance in the FBI. And it may sound boring, some of these text messages, but these people were not boring. And, and th what they were talking about was, was very serious and very funny. And we brought it to D.C. And as you say... The audience were laughing at things that I yeah, because we were worried. There were certain parts where it was like there was either like some some heavy duty abbreviation, or there was these kind of you know bureaucratic terms mentioned, and we're thinking, oh god, you know, people aren't. And it's of course with that audience, they were like guffawing, like yes. people were guffawing, yes. people were you're doing this kind of stuff. <laughs> you know, they were like, uh, yeah, people yeah. were going nuts because of course they were, as you say, unbelievably informed of all of these. Well, issues. and it's this weird disconnect. You have people in the media who are so uninformed about the basics of the Russia hoax that they don't even know what other people are talking mm -hmm. about. And then you have, like, if I go out and speak on a completely unrelated topic somewhere in the United States, mm -hmm. people are like, okay, do you have any information on that September 27th <laughs> meeting with so-and-so? And you're like, how do you know this? Yeah. yeah. So people are informed, but they're not getting informed by yes. traditional media. corporate media. Yeah. 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 And, and the corporate media are completely clueless. They are yeah. completely clueless. Yeah. And, and another thing about that, uh, the, the FBI lovebirds, was, the, as you say, the audience, I think conservatives in D.C. are under such pressure and regularly, they were so happy to be there that <laughs> it was like, and they had permission to enjoy themselves and have fun. And, you know, they're, they're normally the butt of jokes. And they were there and they were la they You could just feel the, the stress lifting off everyone in that yes. audience. Uh, and, and the, and the I, but I, I do go to a lot of theater. I love, I love, you know, anything from like a one-person show to um, musicals or whatnot. And that was truly one of the best theater experiences I've ever had. And oh, no. certainly okay. the best in D.C. Well, thank, thank you so you. much. Thank and you. I love the fact that I remember talking to you about it and obviously of that very informed audience you were probably the most informed person there because you had read all the text I don't messages. Think, I think everybody was. Like, I well, I, know, I don't know if they'd all read yeah. everything which yeah. you had read everything and I just remember you saying you know, I really, I was sitting there and I was thinking I really hope yes. that they end with this one particular thing, which is exactly exactly how yes. Salem chose to end, which was well, you know where she said, "Don't ever text me again." Yeah, well, I, I, I'm one of my uh, New Year's resolutions will be to revive FBI Lovebirds and bring it back, maybe to New York or DC. Great. And I think I think there's an audience for it here. Mm -hmm. yeah, and I think uh, more people actually, want to see just it. President Trump. So we 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 filmed it and released it. By the way, you can see 
the play on what's the FBI Lovebirds.com. FBI Lovebirds.com. You can see it stars Dean Cain, Christy Swanson. You can see that we filmed it five cameras. You can see the whole thing. Uh, and funny enough, it's had a huge uptick in the last few days of, yeah. of oh, views, yes, yes. of course. Uh, and uh, so we released the trailer, and the president retweeted the trailer. And in the trailer is her saying, "Oh, Peter, I love you, Peter, I love you." Right? <laughs> Responsible for And then he went, he went to uh, Minneapolis, wherever it was, the next day, and then basically started re rehashing our trailer to the audience. I was wondering about that. That's great. Okay. So, so it's our trailer. He's actually yes. uh, so that got Lisa Page uh, in the in the Daily Beast. Um, so um, thank you for you're welcome, Lisa, and you're welcome, Molly. <laughs> um, so. Uh, let's let's talk now about the, yeah, your Brett Kavanaugh book uh, and the Kavanaugh and the experience. whole Kavanaugh thing. I do think there were people who remembered their history of Clarence Thomas, and there were people who weren't. The moment that the allegations came out, you had among good faith people, you had people who were like, "This sounds a lot like the Clarence Thomas thing." Waiting until the confirmation yeah. hearings yeah. are done, last minute thing yeah. of you know, like questionable yes. provenance, and no substantiation, and yeah. then there were other people who were like, "Well, we have to take this." Very yeah. serious. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they were inclined to believe it almost before, you know, and, and I, I do think it was that. Do you remember what they did to Clarence yes. Thomas? And not just that sort of shorthand for so many things. Do you remember what they did to Bork or Rehnquist yeah. or all, a whole host of people? My, my favorite fact about, about the Supreme Court is that if they had confirmed Robert Bork, there would now be a majority of liberals on the court. Wait, how so? Bork died oh, right. during the Obama. Interesting. And this was the Bork seat that was yes. just opened up. Yes. Yeah, so, so uh, you know, uh, yes. Kennedy, Ted, Ted Kennedy, the great Irish-American, um, who famously <laughs> who we, borked yeah, Bork, yeah. Uh, is now responsible for having a conservative majority on, on the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, I think you, he deserves that. Yes. Sorry. Yes, that yes, is very you know, interesting. You know, um, so, you know. Although, who knows about the cases that Kennedy wasn't so great on that Bork would have been better in the interim, but... Mm. Yeah, so, oh, true, true. Uh, so, if you want to get the latest up to date uh, on on Blasey Ford, uh, Molly's just written a piece for the Federalist: twenty one reasons why uh, why you shouldn't believe Christine Blasey Ford. And it's actually it's about. I looked at it this morning. It's actually about twenty five. She she puts two or three in. I think you just. I didn't I think you didn't want to say twenty five. She thought no one would read it. But in, in a few of them, it's like you add in a, it's two or three reasons it's, within it's, the one. It's it's overwhelming. By the way, it's I mean, overwhelming. It really is overwhelming. I'm just. Looking at all these people saying, I believe Christine Blasey oh, yeah. Ford. She's it's getting like, awards now, lots of acclaim. And I thought, but you'd never hear people explain why. Yes, they yes. You can't yeah. say, I believe. I believe the sky is orange, right? You have to say because. Yes. You, there is no such thing as I believe. It has to be because. There has to be a because. Right. And nobody's ever asked to do that. And there are so many reasons why people do not believe her. I mean, my standard is. I'm willing to believe anything. I just yes. need to see the evidence. Yes. It's like the Russia thing. People would say, someday it's going to come out and you're oh, yeah. going to look foolish. And I thought, well, if someone provided me evidence, yes. I would change no my mind on who, it. Who, who Until I get that, I'm not going to believe it. This, who was it that said, you know, when facts change, I change my yes. mind? Yeah. It's like, yes. why? What do you do? You start with a yes. belief and then wait for No, but it's, these people are actually saying, um, even if the facts change, uh, uh, I'm, yes. I'm, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm still going to believe it. Well, that, that makes you either dishonest or an idiot. Uh, so let's... Go back to your book, uh, and actually, let's not. Let's go. Let's go forward to the book that came after, which is oh, actually yeah. the fun part. So Molly wrote a best-selling book. Uh, the 
the education. Uh, what was it called? The education. Of Brett the education of Brett Kavanaugh. Sorry, I was getting the second yeah, book. Yeah. yeah. No, sorry, that's the second book. What, your book is called Justice, Justice on, on Trial, Trial, the Supreme Court. Confirmation and the Future of the Supreme Court. Yes. Apologies there for failing to No, my notes. No, my notes. Copy book and put away the copy book. So, so the, you wrote, wrote your book. It became a New York Times bestseller. Uh, I, I loved it, and we recommended it to everyone on the Anna Film Scoop, and we sent you out an, all, an, e out an email with a link on it. I hope yeah. you all clicked on it and made it the people best. people did. That was yeah. amazing. Right. <laughs> no problem. So, um, so then this other book came out, The Education of Brett Kavanaugh, and by two New York Times uh, authors, yes. and it's amazing what happened. And so they, they put an excerpt, uh, as you would, they put an excerpt of the book into the New York Times, which is standard journalistic practice, um, you know, exerting excert, a book. And uh, it was about this new witness, that, that uh, this new uh, victim, actually, victim of Brett Kavanaugh and how he had exposed himself to her and did all sorts of terrible things to her when he was a college student at Yale, was it? Yes. And, you know, this was shocking and it, it took off and it was going to change how everyone viewed the hearings and how everyone viewed everything. And then there was a journalist called Molly Hemingway who had not been provided with an advanced copy of the book, <laughs> but somehow got her grubby little hands, her grubby little journalistic hands on it. And I think I read that you, you stayed up all of Saturday night reading this book and read that particular chapter that they had excerpted, which said there's this new victim. And at the end of that chapter uh, was this bombshell uh, piece of information that the victim herself, the victim, had no memory or no knowledge of, of this incident. No, not only did she didn't remember it happened, she didn't even remember anyone telling her it had happened after it had happened. She, and somehow that didn't get put into their excerpt. Yes, that was excluded from their excerpt. But in the meantime, like this came out on Saturday, I got the book on Saturday and I read it through the night. In the meantime, you had every single Democratic candidate for the nomination calling for the impeachment of Kavanaugh. Or, quoting, you know, quoting this. Yes. Yeah, on this new, based this new information. did a lot of damage in the period of time before. And, and had we not acquired this book until it came out several days later, who knows how much more would have happened in the interim. But yes, they, um, they, failed to, they failed to mention that. They also failed to note that the person making the accusation was kind of a political opponent of Kavanaugh's. Yes. And that doesn't... A long-time political opponent. And this is, again, just something that should be disclosed. It yes. doesn't mean it's not true That's or right. something. Yeah, yes. But yeah. they had been yeah. at odds with each other going back to the 90s. Yes. They were at different... They were on opposite sides That's of the right. Whitewater investigation. Yes. Yes. And this guy's wife had been nominated by Obama for a federal seat um, that she didn't get because of Mitch McConnell uh -huh. kind of stonewalling. And the woman who eventually took that seat was a very close friend, in fact, former girlfriend of Brett Kavanaugh's. Yes. Just, again, doesn't mean that doesn't mean anything. you can't include the allegation, yes. but you but have you, to yeah, mention these yes. things. Yes. And they didn't think that that was relevant. And I used to be a, a print journalist, uh, and obviously the first thing you do when you make a mistake is blame the sub-editors. Um, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> no one knows who they are, and, and they're these hairy guys who work down in the back. As I used to say, what's a sub-editor? It's a guy who corrects other people's mistakes and drives home at night. 
It drives home in the dark, you know. And they have these satellites, they leave the office yeah. at, at midnight, you know. Right. And back in Belfast, you couldn't even get a pint at midnight, like all the pubs were closed. It's very they've sad. They averted disaster for the paper, and then they get. No yes, oh no, that's yeah. terrible. It's terrible. They avert disaster. But anyway, so, but, but they're also great for blaming, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you blame, the, oh, the subs put it in or took it out or changed the headline or whatever. So they blame the subs, uh, the sub editors or the editors uh, for taking this crucial bit of information that the victim, so-called victim, had no memory of this incident and never knew about it. Uh, they blamed the sub-editors. Then I was in my kitchen, in, uh, and you, you wrote about this, uh, and it really took off, and, yeah, and they blamed the subs, and that was fine. And then I happened to be in my kitchen in Venice, California, listening to NPR. Yes, this is the things I do for you. I listen to NPR yeah, people somebody, out there. Yeah, we listen to it so you don't have to. And listen. these two authors, uh, what's, what's their names again? Robin Pogerbin and Kate Kelly. Kate Kelly. We're on NPR talking about uh, the book. Yeah. And the book, the interview had been recorded the week previously, and but we didn't really know that. And then they were asked about, were there any other victims? You know, and a kind of, oh, I wonder. And they, that allowed them to go into an excited tones about this other victim. And again, they declined and refused and didn't mention that the victim had no memory of it. They did exactly what they had done in their New York Times piece, but they had the benefit they had the of having as much time yes. as they possibly yeah, they needed. They could have easily made it. And in. we know that they didn't say it and have it edited out by NPR because NPR actually went back and added a correction yes. to the wow. Yes, but my point is NPR should not have run that interview. In a sense, you, you can't suddenly say this little bit shows problems with the credibility, but the rest of the interview is fine. Right, like... In fact, one of the chapters that they wrote was was a reference to one of the senators saying, "If you're false in one thing, you're false in all things," and that's a. But they weren't applying that standard to themselves yes. or whatnot. Yeah. Um, I just want to point out too what they had there. You say they should have pulled the interview. That's true. Instead, they got this hour long, or you know, something really. It was I think close to an hour. Yeah, yeah. Amazing wow. interview where they got this nothing but a chance to sell their book. Yes. Um, they were on every single network. They, they got reviews in all the major publications. It's just like another book that just came out by Ruth Marcus. Yeah. Reviews everywhere, major coverage in the New York Times, Washington Post, NBC, CBS, ABC, NPR, you know, all the, all the and outlets. These are all the places that also interviewed you, then, <laughs> yes. for your book. And Just asking for a friend. And, uh, yeah, we got none of that treatment yes. at all. And what I also find interesting is that, despite that, we far and away yeah. outsold these yeah. Other, yeah. other books. The book bombed. I mean... I, I don't want to their say book. their book bomb, but I don't want to say that. I hope I, I didn't sound gleeful when I said that, probably because I, I was gleeful. Um, you never want someone's book to bomb, right? Um, why do you think it bombed? I mean, I know, I know it's inaccurate, it's, it, but it, it's super bombed. Not even liberals bought it. I think it sold like 2,000 copies. I actually copies. think that there is this disadvantage that the leftist journalists have. So, in fact, the whole reason we wrote the book was because these liberal journalists were getting contracts, and all the people who were involved in the process said, you know, actually, it was a really interesting story how we got this over the finish line. Mm-hmm. We will never talk to these people. Like, we don't know anything else, but we will never talk to these people. Mm-hmm. We're worried our story won't get told. So it yeah. was almost like this organic thing that yeah. that started. Mm-hmm. And we also knew whoever comes out first gets the bulk of the sales, because yeah. if, there, if there is an audience of people interested in it, they're not going to read the third book. No, they're going to read no, the first exactly. book, the first good book on the matter. Um, so we got that first capture. But also, I don't know if people love reading stories about defeat. 
And even though you could argue that the attacks on Kavanaugh served their purpose, you know, the attorney mm -hmm. for Blasey Ford said that she and her client were motivated by this desire to put an asterisk next to his name. Yeah. And they did. They, they, for the rest of his life, mm. even though there is nothing credible about it, he will be linked to a sexual assault. Yeah. They got what they wanted. But at the other, on the other hand, I think people probably feel really icky about what they did to yeah. get there. And so they don't love the idea of reading about it. The only thing that would have made a leftist book sell is if there had been any support for any of the allegations or any sort of, yeah, any... Documentation. Yeah, and, un and unfortunately for them, but... I mean, in fact, it was the complete operation, opposite. There was lots of contemporaneous documentation to show that, that what was said wasn't true. Uh, you know, by the, way, by the way, you know, like uh, one detail that I just loved was, I mean, the fact that, I mean, he must be an incredibly unusual person, by the way, Brett oh Kavanaugh. Goodness. The fact, you know, and I used to be a high school teacher, I've met some nerdy kids, but to, that, that there was a young man who was keeping this calendar saying who he'd met, where he'd been, and it's like, seriously, is, that is yes. so sweet. So bizarre. But, but yes. kept it. I mean, I don't know what so, age, like. I do also have this thinking of, you know, these are big uh, political operations now, and so one of the downsides of President Trump putting out a list of nominees is they probably had a game plan ready to go on whoever the nominee yes. would be. And it probably made sense in their mind, okay, we know this guy, Brett Kavanaugh, is um, a frat guy. Mm -hmm. He's like, he loves sports and beer. Let's go after him on a Me Too thing. And it seemed like a great plan, except he happened to be incredibly decent with women, yes. as every single ex-girlfriend <laughs> yeah, yeah. attested. And I have this image of the day that the calendars come out, the team leading that oppo going, are you kidding me? Yeah. We picked yeah, yeah. a guy with calendars yeah. yes. that like, yeah. can demonstrate what he was doing, who was at which part. That's yeah. right. she that, summer, that, that summer, he actually... She, you know, she couldn't even settle on which year it was, right? right? But, he, but he knew where he was every weekend that whole summer. Yes. Right. We're, we're running out of time here, and I just want to do two things that we always do with all of our guests, which is ask them um, for a recipe that they're famous for at home. Okay. I like to make enchiladas. So. And you can... Sure. I mean, they're easy. I'm not a good cook, but I, I can... Uh, but my sister gave me a cookbook that is like a Colorado-based cookbook, which is where we're from, and it has a great enchilada Suiza recipe, so that's kind of my go-to you send it to us so that we can give it to the oh, audience. Sure. Okay, yeah. great. That's they're great. I love that. And it's a, fa okay. it's a family favorite, is it? Yes, yes. You're famous for that. That's number one. Number two, then we ask... Are you going to say something else? Are you going oh, yeah, to gonna add, some, add something to your food? Were you adding something to food? I would, no, it's fine. I also right. make green chili, but... Award-winning green chili, Award. but I don't oh. know if I could pass that recipe on. So. Oh, I, I, no, by the way, I, I, I there are, that, that's a thing, that's a thing. People don't don't always share recipes. Yeah. It becomes very kind of because then oh, well, actually we because know someone who we, does, yeah. because, but I know somebody who doesn't as well. No, and because I, I, because I, you become world famous for it, and then you give it away, and then people are like, "Well, I made that." And it's like, <laughs> yeah, no, but I was famous for that before, so we do understand that. Second thing we ask people is: Is there a mocktail cocktail that they are famous for and um, or really enjoy or? So I like Palomas. Do you I know Palomas? I don't know what a Paloma is. So it's the most simple cocktail ever, and it can be fancied up, but it, tequila and grapefruit soda. Oh, I love that. But it's just like a refreshing. I'm um, totally going to have that the next and time on the podcast. You can put some lime soda. juice. Beautiful idea. Put some lime juice in there. A grapefruit salt soda. Rim. You can buy a grapefruit some soda. Some people make it with grapefruit juice, but I like just the grapefruit soda. Oh, I think that and sounds great. Paloma. Uh, and tequila. I'm totally going for that. Okay, and the third thing that we ask people is, a piece of art, a poem, a movie, a song that means an yeah, awful lot to them. This is a good question, and um, I, 
it's a little hard to narrow down, but my husband and I have a very large vinyl record collection and literally like probably four or five thousand albums, which we're trying to, wow. we're trying to shrink. But um, I have several St. Matthew's Passion by Bach and I, lo I just love that work oh. for so many reasons. I love the Passion story and Bach did so much theology in his music and um, it's also very interactive. In, I'm Lutheran and in my church you actually still sing some of the hymns that he wrote for that Passion which was how he intended it to be done. Um, and it's just beautiful, and it just moves me. Oh my God, so much, we're totally so. going to put a reference yes. to that up on the Facebook page. Molly, this has been so nice. Thank Molly. you. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to I wish we had longer. I wish we had longer, and we'll all be uh, watching very carefully, carefully next week when the IG's report yeah, comes we'll out. See. I we'll think you'll, you'll have a few sleepless nights, I think. Yeah, exactly. yes. <laughs> <laughs> thank Great. you so much. Thank you. This is it from Anne and Phelan, from the Anne and Phelan Scoop for this week, um, and we'll be talking to you next week during this very exciting week of the IG's report coming out. Thank you so much.